0: Two, one. Hold on. It says so it I says think. going live. I I, th- I think we're there.
1: I think we're there. So I, I can't thi- see the text that you had up. Two. Yeah, but, but one. your text needs to be Hold up on. on my screen.
0: Yeah, I could share that real quick. Just give me a sec. It says so it so says I going think. live. I I, th- yeah. I think we're there. I think we're there.
1: So I can't I thi- see <laughs> the text that you had up. Two. Yeah, but the text needs to be oh, up on my screen. Yeah, I could share that real quick. Just give me
0: a sec. It says so it says it, going live. I, 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 all right, you got that,
1: John? Are you with me? Um. Yeah. Yes, I got it, but it needs to be higher quality. There. All right, and you got to go back to the original.
0: all right there we go uh welcome to god is open it works it works it works fantastic we should have probably done that before we went live but uh that works too welcome to god is open i'm your host christopher fisher and we have our in residence doctor of physics uh dr jonathan fisher and we are going to be talking about contradictions in the classical attributes of god how are you doing tonight I'm doing great. How are you? It, it's a good day. It's a good day. I get, I got to sleep in, which is the best days ever when you do get to sleep in. So that's always good. Well, I, I spent this morning uh, putting okay. together. I I'm sorry. Like all the weekends. Like all weekends, not all weekends. Sometimes I I have have things to do. But I I spent part of this morning putting together some of these definitions of these classical attributes as we find. Primarily, we're going to be drawing from Charnouk, Stephen Charnouk, from The Existence and Attributes of God because this is one of the more thorough of the books. A lot of these books just touch on things tangentially and they kind of move on because sometimes it's unclear if the authors themselves understand the concepts that they're they're trying to trying to describe how familiar they are, but he actually goes in, in fairly solid detail about what these various attributes actually mean. But I thought maybe we'd start out with Thomas Aquinas, our good buddy who says that God is pure act. God is, uh, let's, let's grab the Latin term over here. He's actus purus and pure act. So what that means in Thomas Aquinas's mind is that, uh, Nothing could act on God. God is pure act. There's no potentiality in God and there's no potency. So let's, uh, Wikipedia is actually pretty good on this. According to Thomas Aquinas, a thing which requires completion by another is said to be in potency to that others. Realization of potency is called actuality. The universe is conceived as a series of things arranged in an ascending order or potency and act at once crowned and created by God, who alone is pure act. And so there, there's a starting assumption in classical theism that God is pure act. That means he does not have potential to be otherwise. Anything with potential is not absolute being. Anything that's not absolute being cannot be God. Does that make sense in your mind?
1: No, but uh, I, I know I know the argument. Yeah, so but I don't think it. I buy. Yeah, so the
0: uh, buying the arguments different than understanding the argument. So uh, this goes along with various other attributes of God's perfection. God is said to be the greatest being, and one one uh, area or attribute that these systematic theologies always tend to start off with is God's ineffability. God cannot be described positively. He can only be described negatively because if you were to positively ascribe anything to God, you'd be adding parts to God. God could be divided. He would have discursive differences, uh, discrete differences from one part of him to another. And God has to be pure being. He cannot have parts. And so as such, he has to be, must be, ineffable. This is one of the highest, highest attributes of God. So let's, let's see what uh, Charnuk says about this. This way of negation is more easy. We better understand what God is not than what he is. And most of our knowledge of God is by this way. As when we say God is infinite, immense, immutable, these are negatives. He has no limits, is confined to no place, emits no change, When we remove him from what is inconsistent with his being, we do not more strongly assert his being and know more of him when we elevate him above all and above all our own capacity. And so we we can only describe God in the negative because ascribing things that are positive to him creates parts, creates change. He's higher than that, higher than that. He is infinitely higher. He he says we, we don't have any terms to express or conceive of him by if we transfer to God in our honor because spirit is the highest excellency in our nature. Yet we must apprehend God above any spirit since his nature is so great that he cannot be declared by human speech, perceived by human sense, or conceived by human understanding. So this is the attribute of ineffability. We can't say anything positive about God. We can only approximate him in the negative sense. Negative attributes. So this goes along with simplicity. Simplicity is the next attribute so, of God. Yeah.
1: Just real quick, this is a this is a standard called uh, negative theology, and there is such a thing called positive theology, but, but which uh, I believe Eastern Orthodox tend to propose. Uh, but in terms of the Western canon, this is basically the standard, the reason for negative theology.
0: Right. So sometimes people will say, well, God has these positive attributes and then these negative attributes, the incomprehensible or the incommunicable attributes, attributes which can't be ascribed to. And then the communicable attributes, but they'll always make the communicable attributes subservient to the incommunicable ones. So they'll say God is immutable. Yeah, but God has love and we kind of understand love, but he's immutable. He's changeless. He, He's impassable, meaning he doesn't have any passions, which include love. And so they have to redefine love. They say it's a positive attribute, this love, but it's not the type of love that we might have towards our children. That's something that's um, discreet, something that, uh, that is tangible God's God's method of love is like a universal it's a it's all-encompassing it's part of his nature it doesn't change it doesn't shift it's a love unlike our love and we see that expressed here and we, well down here in the immutability quotes we we talk about uh, he talks about God's body parts God can't have body parts he says because Body parts uh, create create parts, and God has to be simple. He has to be immutable. If he had parts, he could decay. So when the Bible talks about these body parts, it's just using a language that uh, can can register in our minds. It's condescending language as as he writes in in this book. So simplicity is our next attribute that's uh, pretty fundamental to classical theism. It says, if God were not spirit, he cannot be creator. All multitude begins in and is reduced to unity. Remember, uh, Plotinus is the one, Plato's the one. Uh, God has to be absolute unity. He has to be absolute simple. As above the multitude, there is an absolute unity. So above mixed creatures, there is absolute simplicity. You cannot conceive number without conceiving the beginning of it in that which is not a number, a unit. You cannot conceive any mixture. You must conceive some more simple things to be the original and basis of it. So if God had parts and these parts are divisible, those parts which are divisible out of the whole are more primary and must be the creator or greater than that which has parts, which which has multiplicity. Are you following his logic there? Yep. Yeah. <clears throat> so it says, if if God therefore had a body, the perfection of DD would depend upon every part of that body. The more parts that he's compounded of, the more his dependency would be multiplied. If you have parts, you have dependencies. God can't have dependencies. If you have parts, you have change because those different parts, they could change in relation to another, which causes degradation, which means that, uh, a compounded essence, as we go go down to his definition of immutability, if his essence is compounded, it can't be God essence. His essence must be pure simplicity. Uh, back up to the simplicity, and because God would be dependent being if he had a body, he would not be the first being. For the compounding parts are in order of nature, which is compounded in them, as the soul and body are before the man, which results from the union of them. So whatever is compounded, it has a greater than itself, which is the simple, the parts by themselves rather than the compounded being. So immutability, uh, God can't change. If God were... Spare, oh, go for it. Wait, wait, wait. wait.
1: So, so city is that it um, could appear as though this is not negative theology because you're actually making a positive statement that... that the simple being, right? But I think... Uh, they they don't consider it that because you're basic apart. So you can still phrase it in terms of a negative, and they tend to do that with their definition. Right. So the, the one that uh, Plotinus talks about
0: is not supposed to be even the concept of a one single unit. It's not a discursive thing. It's beyond conceivability. And to, so even assigning uh, it the name, the one, is inaccurate in his in his theology. So uh, going yep. back to this immutability. It says, uh, whatsoever is compounded is changeable in its own nature, and it should never be changed. So going on, it says, God is unchangeable in his essence, nature, and perfections. Immutability and eternity are linked. So he also distinguishes eternity. Eternity doesn't, doesn't mean that God has lived forever and will live forever. But eternity in his mind is God is outside the bounds of time. God is not subject to sequential events, uh, to change, because remember, if God is at one point uh, at six o'clock and then another point at seven o'clock, that causes parts, that causes change, that causes degradation. So his idea of eternity has to supersede. Hey, are you with me?
1: Yep, yep, I can hear you. I lost internet real quick there. I don't know what's going on there. Yeah, so the whole time you're talking, it like freezes every five seconds and then Mm. starts up again. Is that your internet? Is spotty right now? Uh, It should be.
0: I got like the fastest modem Uh, and the fastest internet. That's what I
1: assumed. But of course, all your kids are on it all at the same time. Maybe I should knock them all off of the internet and say,
0: none for <laughs> yeah. you kids. I think it's because I'm doing so much uh streaming. We're we're going uh let's take a look at this. I am streaming uh to you, and then I was streaming back into YouTube, and so what we'll do
1: yeah, is... I could uh, just look at your YouTube.
0: Yeah, that's actually a good good uh idea. That's the, the easy thing to do about that.
1: Alright. Um
0: So we'll go there. Where did we leave off with, uh, omnipotence?
1: Okay. I'll have to mute you, but I think I can see it. That'll work.
0: All right. Um, do our, do we have a live feed that you know of?
1: Uh, it's it's not very recent right yeah uh, video but i don't know about my voice i'm not listening to that all right
0: so i think i think uh, we are good to go um did we talk about omnipotence did did you hear about that
1: just go where you left off i i understand these attributes okay so so sake
0: of the audience Omnipresence is God is above space and time. It doesn't mean like he's in every square inch of every every like a house or anything like that. God transcends space and time, much like eternity means he transcends minutes and seconds. Omnipotence is interesting. It's, it's more than God is able to do all things. Uh, since God doesn't have discursive thought and he can't do discursive things and he doesn't have potentiality in him all his acts are emanations of his essence and this is this is how it is described it belongs in regard of the inconceivable excellency and activity of his essence this is his power and uh, an omnipotence is nothing but the divine essence effectatious ad extra it is his essence as operative and the immediate principle of operation as the power of enlightening in the sun and the power of heat in the fire. Which is interesting because in Plotinus, of course, the one can't have active principles working on the world because uh, you can't assign power and act to the one. So in this regard, Augustine and Christian classical theism uh, departs from classic Platonism because they want to assign an attribute called omnipotence and assign that to God in addition to all these other attributes. And this is going to be one of their downfalls because this contradicts, contradicts other things that uh, they believe. So omniscience is the last one we'll talk about. This is, this is a pretty simple, I I, uh, underlined some things here. Uh, God's knowledge is non-discursive. It's eternal. It's absolute. It's simple. It doesn't come from outside himself. It's not generated from like looking at the future and then knowing what free creatures are going to do because as Charnock uh, argues, that would make the creatures superior to God. So if God is gaining his knowledge based on looking to see what free action creatures are going to do, they are more powerful than God. They're more primary than God. They are more God than God. If he gets from them, if he receives from them, self-sufficiency is another attribute we didn't put up here, God's uh, aseity, uh, these types of ideas is God cannot gain from things that are not God, God can't gain at all actually, but if God did gain, if God did change, if he did receive from outside himself, he would not be God because he's not most primary. So this type of knowledge is simple, ungenerated, eternal, innate, and in God himself. He does not know by discourse. He doesn't think things. He doesn't uh, reason from one thing to another to gain this knowledge. It is innate in God's character. So this, this podcast here is about contradictions in the attributes of God. I'll let you go first, and we, we could deal with any and all uh, contradictions you may see.
1: Well, first of all, I wanted to point out that this all is basically trying to come up with derivations from a very simple proposition, which is that which is what, what we introduced everything with. God is simple, therefore God cannot change. Or god god is perfect therefore god cannot change everything else flows from this notion of changelessness that it's so it's creating this concept of potential, potentiality and actuality and then every other concept is flows from it well if, if if you have to be pure actuality you must be outside of time because you are guaranteed to have potential just to be inside time right yeah, so let's let's talk about
0: that a little bit. So James Duwezel, he's he's the primary modern scholar on simplicity. And in his book, he basically needs to he needs to convince his readers that the world is not co-necessary with God. So the logic is goes like this. If God is necessary and his omniscience is necessary, the contents of his uh, omniscience is also necessary. That means the world is equally as necessary because if the world had potentiality then yeah. the object of God's knowledge would also have potentiality to be something different and so do you know how he responds to this take a wild guess
1: um, wild guess okay he says he just says no I don't I don't accept it he, he appeals to mystery <laughs> oh my goodness he appeals what? to
0: mystery he says oh so it's, 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 a, it's basically
1: the same <laughs> it's basically the same he's just saying nah <laughs> yeah he's like it, it's somehow
0: somehow the world isn't necessary well uh, but this... the object of god's knowledge is necessary the content of god's knowledge is necessary and god is necessary but the world is not somehow
1: but this illustrates how comical it is because everything is a a logical derivation from this concept of of pure actuality that's the whole reason these these divine attributes exist. So then you just sort of hand wave your way out of it. it, it it's silly, right? Absolutely,
0: it's, it's, it's silly in Plotinus as well. Plotinus said reality is an overflow or outpouring, a reflection of the One. So things work, can't be created by the One. That's potentiality. That's change. Uh, that that makes God non-simple, and so reality just kind of spawns itself based on a reflection of God without touching God. That's kind of like how the Calvinists say that um, God doesn't receive glory from us. When the Bible talks about glory to God, it's talking about maximizing God's glory in creation, reflecting God's glory, because God cannot receive from us. It's not like something we do can give God benefit for these reasons that we've covered already, because that would make him non-primary that would make something greater than god that would make him dependent in in this philosophy and so it's it's the same thing so that that's one of the very very elementary criticisms of classical theism is it really does make all things co-equal and co-necessary with god and just just the definition of those terms In the same way that God is necessary, all of creation, you and me, uh, my cat uh, pooping on my carpet because the litter box is full and the kids haven't cleaned it in days, that's co-necessary with God. That, that's how those it things also,
1: work. It, it makes a joke of the commentary, like, able to do all things, omnipotent. He's able to do all things because literally nothing else could ever happen in any way, shape, or form, right? Right, except like- for... It's not even like a meaningful declaration of power at that point. It's just saying the universe exists. So we'll turn to omnipotence. And
0: in omnipotence, let's see what he says here. um, That omnipotence means God is able to do all things. Huh. And he also says, hence it follows that because the power is essentially in God, more operations of God are possible than are exerted. Hmm. Huh. So he's saying... In his claims, this is Charnouk. He's the same guy we've read for every other attribute. Uh, he claims that there's more possibilities in God than are exerted. God could have done potential, other things. Then. That's
1: yes, potential.
0: That one hundred percent is potential. He's adding potentiality to God, although he 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 just, just, just disclaimed it. Over and over again in all his other attributes, it's 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 not a consistent God can do all things. There's things that God can do that God doesn't do, meaning God has potential. God could be other than yeah. what God is. God is not immutable. Immutability is not a property of God. So to so right off the bat, his own definition of omnipotence contradicts his definitions of simplicity and immutability, and the concept, which I didn't find it in his book, of pure actuality, but uh, to be sure he would believe those if presented with Aquinas on those issues, that God is pure act. Because he already affirms it in simplicity and in immutability, impassibility, all those things. He's affirming
1: these ideas. So he wants to have his cake and eat it, too. Uh, that yeah, means- I, ha- I have to wonder, like, how does he qualify as a classical theist at this point? I mean, presumably all the classical theists end up doing this, right? And so where 100%. are they even drawing the line? Like, what is their standard for why you're not one? If you could just basically use all the terms and, and rewrite them however you feel. Well, the funny thing about Dwezel, who who uh, I've mentioned before,
0: is uh, he's exclusionary. And so he takes Norman Geisler. And he says, oh, Norman Geisler, no, not Norman Geisler, Bruce Ware. He says, Bruce Ware, in responding to open theists, says that God has emotions. Well, this causes change. Bruce Ware is basically an open theist. And so he wants to kick. (laughs) 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 So so, it depends how consistent they are and, and how exclusionary they are. But I think they would rather open their gates wide, accept more people and then have micro criticisms against each other in a subset rather than to exclude. Because if they're they're fractioning on these issues, then they lose all semblance of control of, uh, of some sort of overarching tradition that they can adhere to. So I, I think the general rule is if you talk like this, it doesn't matter how consistent or how inconsistent you are, you're going to be swept into that broad brush into that big tent with everyone else
1: it's just a club that they're using i I think they probably just want you to go through their seminaries and start speaking like them then because i the your actual mdiv or whatever you get from the seminaries seems to matter a lot to them (laughs) it sure does (laughs) i don't know how much value it has
0: on the marketplace so it better it better (laughs) give them some sort of emotional validation
1: yeah exactly it's the, you gotta make the club so that you give you make your whole education have value it's like
0: uh history professors like what do you do with that you you just have to be a history professor yourself it's like <laughs> <laughs> i i kind of know what i do with this okay so omnipotence god can do everything but Um, If if that is to be bounced off against simplicity and immutability, God really can't do everything. He can't do other than what's been eternally...
1: By definition, that's everything.
0: Okay. In that sense, but not in the sense that he says that there's more operations in God that are possible that are exerted. And so, yeah, that is true. By definition, that is everything. So if God foreknew that my fingers would wiggle in this manner... Uh, there was never a possibility even though we could imagine it in our head would we'll say oh the, the the pinky could have went up for 2 seconds it went down for 1 even though it only went up for 1 and then went down for 2 even though we could imagine these possibilities in our head they never were an actual possibility they they could not have actualized because Everything's co-necessary with God. It's, it's part of God's necessary knowledge that God has necessarily had, which is necessarily identical. The contents of God's knowledge are identical with all his other attributes. That's another thing to think about when it comes to omniscience. The thoughts are not discursive. It's not like God could think about a memory in his head, like you and I could sit here and remember maybe a childhood event. God's knowledge doesn't function like that because those are parts. You can't divide your memory into parts in in God's knowledge. You can't have distinct thoughts like one thought over here and one thought over here. All of it is in a uh, immutable soup. That's that's co-equal, co-eternal, co-at the forefront of God's mind. Uh, things don't one equals one plus one equals two. Uh, th- there's no sequence in that. It's, it's all co-equal. That's that's God's knowledge there. Yeah.
1: So so this is one of the big problems with negative theology is that they're so afraid of giving any sort of definition to God that he becomes nothingness. He, and, and I think even uh, a, a lot of atheist critiques are saying he is basically I, like you can say exactly the same things about nothing as this, but he, but there's there's no concept behind everything. You're just you're just trying to do everything through negation, and you're not pushing his theory like supposedly science, science is done through negation too, right? Because you're always trying to disprove something. And so you only disprove the theory, but you still have the theory, right? You, are, you have a positive theory and then you go through and try to negate it. In, the, in this case, there is no positive theory. It's just a denial of knowledge altogether. And so that's one of the arguments I've made previously that in negative theology, God's
0: indistinguishable from nothingness. And so the, the laws of physics, you, you could kind of abstractly consider the laws of physics like nothingness. They're just ways that the world operates. You wouldn't really say that they're like a, a thing. And in the same way, God is just a facet of the universe, just forcing everything to happen that does happen in specific ways necessarily, even if he has a quote unquote, an active element that doesn't, he, he is how how our friend uh, Charnook here describes he's the the heat behind the sun or something like that. God makes the entire world necessary. There's no options for anything else. we got We got a question, not a question, but a comment by Wilson in the comments. Creation, by definition, requires potential. If there's no potential, then creation is just an emanation and overflow rather than an actual creation which is absolutely correct if there it, it's 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 a nothing it's it's not god doing something positively even it's just it's a force facet of the world we're in fatalism if this system is true
1: yeah there's an irony this when you create the eternal now you you don't have this distinction between what's in time and what's not time in fact everything becomes out of time and in fact everything's just an illusion and, and creation is included in that, right? Creation, just like any other act, is is a new act potential, but it's always existed, and, and God has always emanated it outside of time. Then it itself is just an illusion, and that is what uh, I think the Par, was it Parmenides who was making that argument, one of the ancient Greek philosophers, on on that very basis. Uh, the writings of Parmenides are kind of
0: scattered. I think uh, I, I quote him in full. I think I quoted him in full on one of my previous podcasts. But Plato mm-hmm. has a big, big writing on Parmenides, in which he talks about the One, and that's that's one of the most Neoplatonic works of Plato, the actual Plato that we have in existence, talking about change and immutability and division, and that's that's what it's all about. This is the things that they really cared about. <laughs> Let's see. Omnipotence. So one of the reasons that uh, we're having this podcast today is because there was a guy I was interacting with on on simplicity. He wanted to say, "Hey, I think simplicity is true." I'm like, "Well, you you really can't have that." For example, in omniscience, if God learned something, he he said, "Oh, God could learn something. Jesus could learn something. So God could learn something." Well, well, that's not actually allowed in classical theism. That that's actually a violation of simplicity. If Jesus is God and Jesus learned something, it doesn't matter if God the Father knew the thing that Jesus learned. Uh, Jesus the human learning something, adding to him, violates simplicity, immutability, this definition of omniscience. Remember, all things cannot be discrete. All things must be the same thing. They can't have parts. They can't have dependencies. Parts and learning from outside yourself creates dependencies, means you're not God. Are you familiar?
1: Yeah. So so that creates a like I don't know exactly off the top of my head what the classical theist response is to the notion of Jesus being fully God and fully man. You want me to tell you? Yeah, what's We
0: what? want, <laughs> want, want me want me to tell you why
1: I was blocked by James
0: White on Twitter? <laughs> it's okay. I asked him. Was the Jesus part, was the human part of Jesus God? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so then I I ask Calvinists this all the time. Was the human part of Jesus God? And either uh, they hem and haw, like, oh, you don't understand the hypostatic. I think I I do understand the hypostatic union. I think I do. Uh, Augustine, his solution was, That Jesus was kind of a being that was in time, eternally predestined to do various acts that doesn't actually have overlap with the God substance. Much like the voice from heaven that he talks about in his Confessions chapter 11, the voice in heaven wasn't actually God speaking, but an eternally predestined creature in time making those sound waves for so us to that hear is,
1: you're not believing in the god man at that point you do not believe jesus is fully god and fully man you just believe in some sort of possession of a body yeah they they believe god is
0: fully god and or jesus is fully god and fully man just that and they the fully, don't believe he's
1: fully man well,
0: but they don't believe that the fully man part of him was fully god <laughs> That that is literally oh, yeah. that's literally what the hypostatic union teaches. People don't understand this, and so just asking them the simple question, "Was the human part of Jesus God?" Uh, really riles them up because <laughs> they don't they, want to say it. They don't want to say it. Um, I've
1: i they don't want to say it. I've gotten maybe
0: three Calvinists out of like fifty to say no, the 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 human part of Jesus was not God. I've gotten mm-hmm. like three out of fifty. The other other forty-seven uh, didn't want to answer the question. They 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 just responded, you don't understand the hypostatic union. Well, if oh, I'm not even making any claims, I'm just asking a question. <laughs> I, I'm just I'm just trying I'm trying to gather some information about your beliefs. Yeah. And so, that that's the claim. So, Jesus can't learn the the god part of Jesus can't learn in classical theism because that would be a violation of the god attributes that we already had. So, if you're claiming that The human part of Jesus was God. You have now added division to simplicity. You've added uh, change to to immutability. You've added presence to omnipresence. You added impotency to omnipotence, omnipotence. It's, It's funny that in Charnuk's description of omnipotence, he says, a creature which can die is impotent. And now Jesus died. So, <laughs> well, I guess. So that's why in, in in traditional theism, hypostatic union, Jesus, the human part of Jesus cannot be God. And so I, I, I went back and forth with this guy on simplicity, trying to hash out what it actually means and what omniscience means. So uh, he tried to make the claim that some of my examples were not... We're not logical. I said, I, as a human being, I could forget something. Does God have the power? Is he powerful enough to choose to forget something? Can't. Is that something God can do? And so you you always hear them uh, appeal to things like, well, God can't make a square circle and God can't make a burrito so hot that he can't eat it uh, because those those uh, incorporate contradictory things, some premises that that right. well, um,
1: logical impossibilities
0: logical impossibilities um but but here's the thing i could forget stuff and so if yeah. i could do something and god can't do that it's not like the thing i'm doing is a, a logical logically non-existent it's like that things doesn't exist it's a it's a thing we know that does exist and god not being able to do it means god can't do all things and so what do you think his appeal was how, how do you think he responded
1: well, even saying you you could die, right, is... Right. Like, so, I don't know. Like, if I put myself in a Calvinist position, I would basically say, in the context of God, it's a logical impossibility. So, I try to stick with the same argument. Right? right. And
0: so, here's how that happens. Here's how that works. Um, can God choose not to be somewhere? Um, they would say, no, because that contradicts his omnipotence. And if, if He he could not be in a location. But... But uh, just, just notice what they did there. They just shifted their priority of attributes. They just said one attribute trumps another. You could just as e- easily argue that it's logically inconsistent for God not to be able to be everywhere uh, because that violates his, uh, his uh, omnipotence. So they'll make one subversive into other. They'll say omniscience entails that God must know all facts. Therefore, it's logically inconsistent that God can do everything, including forgetting facts, whereas they could have just as easily with the with the same turn of breath, the same logic said it makes no sense that God can't f- decide to forget things or not be in a location because that violates his omnipotence, being able to do everything the, the there's no rhyme or reason rather than what they logically prioritize in their own mind yep. for what they want to adhere to.
1: Yeah, so all of these attributes come from some sort of logical flow and assumptions, but, but you're, you're pinning them down and you're saying that they have to pick a certain flow to define your other attributes.
0: Yeah, so there, there's a definite reason that the Platonists, they discarded omnipotence, having active agency, being able to do things, because what does that do? That necessitates that God uh, has potentiality, <clears throat> one, and it necessitates that um, these other attributes
1: now well, have parts. Like it's in the word, right? P- um, omnipotent. It says all potent. F- pure potentiality is what omnipotence actually means. If so, like it is. It is the exact opposite of pure actuality to call something omnipotent. Yeah, that is true. Uh, so
0: pure actuality means that God has no potency. God has no potentiality. And so omnipotence is in fact, as you point out, the opposite of pure actuality. It's the opposite yeah. of simplicity. If God can do things uh that are not eternally yeah. part of him, you know, if he has the potency to to achieve, that's an act. And acts have time, acts have distinction, acts have have parts, and that violates his Simplicity. It also makes him dependent on creation, because we remember back to our dependencies. If God is able to interact with the world, that means the world is uh, not subservient to him; that he's subservient to the world, because he's gaining and in interacting with things outside himself. This this violates violates uh, all these all these attributes: immutability, specifically simplicity and pure actuality. So it's not like we're making any of this stuff up either. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't know of any one of one of the my problems with modern atheists is they don't understand classical theism or classical arguments or classical apologetics in in any meaningful way. I I had I had done an interview with Schuyler Fiction where I wanted to actually just talk to him about the a Kalam cosmological argument and he had never even heard of it and uh, so i'm sitting there dumbfounded that what? this yeah so i'm sitting here dumbfounded that this supposed uh you know apologist against christians have never even heard this basic theology it's it i can't i can't find atheists to talk to who actually understand what's going on here and understand what classical theism actually believes in order to have meaningful conversations and so that that definitely is problematic. But I did read, I don't know if you've ever read the book, George H. Smith's Atheism, The Case Against God. I've read snippets. Yeah, so uh, in that, I got a bunch of highlights from it. And uh, he talks about some of these, These uh, he talks about negative theology, and he's very good at describing problems with negative theology. For example, not being able to distinguish God from nothingness. And he argues against uh, Molinistic ideas that there are possible worlds, even in the Christian theology. So he's very good there. Uh, But he also points out some of these contradictions in omniscience and and omnipotence, God being able to do everything. If God can do all things, then we necessarily have to deny immutability. We have to deny um, omnipotence or omnipresence omniscience and any other attribute we didn't even grab all the attributes there's still other attributes we got here god's eternity eternity god being outside space and time those types of things must be denied just for the simple attribute of omnipotence so in my estimation uh christians would be better off dropping that as one of their distinguishing features and just converting to pure platonism they'd be a little bit better even though uh, still, Platonism doesn't make too much sense in how the world is spawned by reflecting against the One.
1: Are you with me? Yeah. Yeah, I was just checking some of the comments. So, uh, yeah, it, it's like everything is just, what what's really happening is that they're shoehorning the the classical theists were shoehorning Platonism into Christianity, and they were doing that specifically because Platonism was what the intellectuals believed at the time. So they had to try to find a way to get it in. And but but God obviously in the Bible is interacting with people all the time. So omnipotence had to be a key portion of that, despite the fact that it breaks apart every other bit of classical theo- or of Platonism.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I I would compare it to modern Christians trying to shoehorn evolution into the Bible. Oh yes, the the Bible affords for evolution, so you don't have to read day like day. It could be a long period, and then there's some evolution in there
1: somewhere. It's exactly the same concept. You look at what the intellectuals of the time believe, and then you try to Make Christianity a part of that.
0: It's like they—they they totally believed it. They totally believed that we evolved from sea creatures. <laughs> like I—I don't, I don't know about that. I—I—I—I I, I, I think I think you might be missing something there. I—I
1: I think that that may in fact be incorrect. Just probably. Uh, I'll, I'll send you a link later. But basically, any time any of the church fathers at any moment talk about this, they believe in a young earth, right? yeah there's some claim that they didn't like oh yeah augustine definitely didn't because he re- he allegorized all of genesis but but you got to realize that augustine basically thinks the allegorizing of the old testament is the most important way to interpret but he doesn't deny the non-allegorical form and so he d- even augustine believed in a young earth i'll send you some of the links <laughs> Yeah, I I don't doubt
0: it. I don't, I don't think it was an intellectual option really at their yeah, time period. It's Exactly. It's one of these post it's like it's like uh philo of Alexandria thinking that Moses was talking about Neoplatonism in his description. <laughs> like he, Mo, Moses definitely believed in Platonism because he has God in a burning bush and fire is the primary uh, Adam in this world because, you know, you got the four elements Ugh. earth and fire, water air, and, and fire was the most primary, so so he definitely understood, and guess what? Guess what? Um, th- this is actually what they write. Aristobulus uh, er- writes this about Plato, that uh, Plato had access to Greek translations of Moses, and actually learned all his philosophy from oh. Moses writing <laughs> on Mount Sinai. And th- this is in Alexandria, which this claim is said, and then it's repeated. It's repeated by Philo, by Clement, Augustine, Eusebius. In his preparation for the Gospel, writes all sorts of people who, who talk about this, and their consistent claim was Platonism is not. Yeah, you know what? Platonism's all good and well, but guess what? Plato actually learned everything he taught from from moses
1: Moses. but moses apparently didn't write it down for us (laughs) because you know you know
0: moses was in egypt
1: (laughs) yeah 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 but apparently moses never wrote these things in any sense that plato wrote them so
0: yeah you uh, just have to read into everything that's that (laughs) was one of the things they did
1: it's so comical though because like it's it's like you can see the code behind it, a person's arguments. Once you understand what's what's going on, you know exactly what, why they're going to say what they're going to say. And, you know, a lot of times when you get presented all this information, like, just like if you're some brand new Christian or something, you get presented a lot of information, you don't know where it's coming from or why they're saying this, and you just, you, you kind of have to nod. But as soon as you see exactly <laughs> how they're hoarding and why they're shoehoarding, like, they, they, they just look comical. Every time you hear them talk about it (laughs)
0: oh oh so funny yeah i i definitely agree um you gotta look at what people are saying why they're saying it how they're saying it and Mm -hmm. uh, i think it's funny when things come full circle and so you have modern day calvinists arguing for primacy of the bible and uh, they don't know what where all their basic foundations are coming from and so uh when they are presented with what the Bible actually says, they're like dumbfounded, like, why would the Bible say that? And why do I believe what I believe? And then you, you see them trying out various attempts because it, they, they've lost the plot, the, the circle. At some point, they're not familiar with the history of how they got to their current position. Right. They were never taught the shoehorning. They were just taught the the end result. So so uh, the funniest thing is when I was on this Calvinist webpage and I put a poll question, do you affirm divine simplicity? There's like a hundred votes, a hundred votes. And 50% said yes. And 50% said, I'll let you guess. 50% said, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not familiar with it. I'm not familiar with it. And so I'm in the comments trying to argue to Calvinists what Calvinists believe. I'm not even arguing my own position. I'm saying this is literally what divine simplicity is. It's literally taught in Calvinism. And I'm arguing against people. Uh, it. They've never heard of divine simplicity. They're like, "Oh no, Calvinism yeah. doesn't teach that." Yeah, it does. <laughs> Here's the quotes. What do you What do you think's going on here? No, it doesn't say that. This is This is literally your, your theology. It's It's one of the most primary primary attributes of God that feeds into everything else. And so, some Calvinists, modern Calvinists, will say, "God knows the future because God decrees it." Well, guess what? That violates simplicity. It violates immutability. It violates classical omniscience. It violates God's omnipotence because you're making God's knowledge dependent on an action. You're making it discursive. You're giving it parts. You're giving potentiality into God. This is not what Calvinists believe. They do not believe God knows because God decreed. The people who don't know Calvinism, who claim to be Calvinists, they might believe it, but normal, Calvinist systematic theology does not believe it because it contradicts all their attributes. But they don't know it. They don't know their own their own theology. Yeah, it's <clears throat>
1: This is why I was trying to understand what exactly makes a Calvinist a Calvinist. If they, if they don't know their own theology and they like, it's just some sort of in insiders club. You don't have to know anything. You just have to not be antagonistic towards people who are claiming who are making random claims. If you're antagonistic towards
0: outsiders, you are <laughs> now an insider, though, and so right. it, it's a it's a signaling thing where all you have to be is uh, adversarial towards your common enemy in group out group they're not part of the group we attack them um yep. <laughs> uh so i was dealing in this other group with two calvinists and i'm saying um w- w- what am i saying exactly that the writers of the old testament didn't believe in calvinism they believed <laughs> in basically open theism and there's mm-hmm. a calvinist who's one of these progressive calvinists who thinks that The Bible, as the Bible was written in the the New Testament, they understood God more fully than the Old Testament. And they just kind of had a hazy conception of God in the Old Testament. And so what I'm saying is correct, that these people did visualize God in the open theistic sense, but then they grew and they progressed and they learned better about the attributes of God. And so I'm fighting against this other Calvinist. Wait,
1: wait, so so what do they say about... um the inerrancy of the scripture then well they'd be denying the type of inerrancy that's
0: like a literalism but i'm interacting with a different calvinist who wants traditional inerrancy and saying he wants to say that the bible writers throughout had the same conception about god and the god of calvinism who do you think that the first guy sided with and who do you think he attacked obviously the in group and he yeah, attacked you yeah he said said you're wrong chris um although you're right about the details about the old testament writers believing this and this and this uh you're wrong and you need to it's it's uh, it's it is total insider outsider they they don't care yeah. about he was agreeing with me against this other guy but he would not stand up against this guy and argue my position as a calvinist against his fellow calvinist in group, out group. It was crazy. Yeah. Huh. All right. So, uh, any other attributes, contradictions we have going on here? I don't know how long the stream is so far. Let's see. We got about uh, about an hour of stream. I don't know, plus or minus the time where my internet went out. We'll see. We'll have to see what kind of streamed there. But anything else we want to talk about? Plato was a pre-Christ Christian. <laughs>
1: that's that's what they argue that is what they argue yeah yeah it's gotta be like and why just plato like how does plato magically get all this no one else apparently is a pre-cold christian that's funny in denver
0: i was talking to uh one calvinist at the at the will duffy debate and we're talking about uh Plato and Platonism and Christianity and he kept saying you mean Aristotle? I'm like no I don't mean Aristotle. I mean Plato. <laughs> who, who cares about Aristotle? <laughs> Zero people care about Aristotle. He, he, yes, he's a famous name, but everyone cared about the affiliations yeah. of Plato
1: and the teachings oh, of Plato. Yeah. Aristotle was was a piker. Yeah, Aristotle completely repudiated a, a huge for like he wanted he didn't believe in the one at all for example. So, I don't know. I don't know why you would
0: bring him up. Oh, uh, it's funny. But uh, it's one of those things where it's like, I know more than you about this subject, so I'm going to try to correct you on minor details. And then the corrections, like, <laughs> all over the place. It's like, oh, yeah. this no, that's is what we posture. deal with. It's a posturing. That's so, what it's about. Immutability, God cannot change in any respect. If God creates, then God has mutability that's an action creation is in action if god uh, does anything learns anything new if god becomes man so let's say john the 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 book of john is saying that god became man when it says the word became flesh uh, and dwelt among us and the word was god we'll say that is a change being depicted there uh, that has to be rejected if that is a change that does have to be rejected because that would violate immutability God cannot change. God cannot do new things. God cannot assume parts, get parts in any sense. There's nothing that can be added and taken away from God. We can't even describe God positively, which reminds me very much of the ancient Gnostics who were some of the first teachers. if you read against heresies, um, it, it talks about it talks about how they talk about God as being the one ineffable one that's above comprehension beyond description. Because these Gnostics were very early Christian Platonists, and they infested the world at the time. This is, these are the things they cared about. I don't know if you know this, but uh, Plotinus has an entire section in the Enneads when he's responding to the Gnostics as like an equal philosophical branch that he actually has to vie with because these people were out there He's familiar with them and he has to respond to their arguments about creation and the Demiurge. These are the people that he's interacting with.
1: Yeah, I think ineffability is, is really interesting because it seems to be a, a complete reaction against the, the classical Greek gods, right, who are very human in their actions and motivations. And... So there's a sort of like almost like a childlike reaction that says not only is not only is God greater than that, he's so far that you can't even describe it. You can't even think about it. Like, like, you know how a kid just says, like, you're arguing and he says, I, I believe in that twice as much. I'm right <laughs> two times. I'm right infinity times. Yeah, that That's what it seems like. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think Plato
0: was a little bit tempered by uh, the killing of Socrates, but I don't think it was too much. I think uh, I think it wasn't too much. Because sometimes he'll talk about Greek gods, but it's always like tongue-in-cheek. And then he'll talk oh, about the course, one in Herminides. Yeah. But it does seem like a reaction. Well, what's that ancient quote? That if the horses had gods, they'd be in the shape of horses. And that was their mindset, that... It couldn't be that God makes man in his art, his image. And so that Mm -hmm. that was the Christian belief that there's God and then man's made in his image. It couldn't be that it had to be the reverse. And not only is it not the reverse, but it, that God making man in his image, us being in the image of God is evidence against those gods being like us. So it's chicken and the horse type of thing going on there. Chicken and the
1: horse. Chicken and the horse. You
0: can't put the horse before the
1: chicken. Yeah, I definitely won't do that. Okay. So, did you hear? Did you hear the story of the
0: young Isaac Newton? And uh, he he had to he had to take care of the horses every day, and that was one of his daily chores. And uh, so one day, his his dad comes out, and he's in the barn, and he's reading Rene Descartes, and he said, "Young Newton, you can't put Descartes before the horses."
1: <laughs> well i didn't hear that story no <laughs> I, I still wish i had <laughs>
0: It's chicken egg cart in the horse thing you know ch- put yeah, the chicken that's, behind. How, that's how it works <laughs> that's, that's how that works all right well we'll let you go we'll cut off there i think it's been a good episode uh, what's been your favorite part of this episode we'll do a michael malice
1: <laughs> you're shaking uh, your head <laughs> yeah it's it's i it's actually this this notion that uh all things have to be co-equal with god i think that's the the most comical part of this whole thing that the the intention is to make god so beyond everything and all things that he, you can't even describe him and yet the very concept forces everything to become god
0: yeah. Everything to be God. Absolutely. And and they just appeal to mystery to try to undo that because they, yeah. they understand what it does. They understand that all our actions being known from all eternity makes us as eternal as God. Yeah. We are co-equal to God in their system. And it's an appeal to mystery that they do. All right. Well, thanks for coming on the program and thanks for talking about this. Uh, any questions and yeah. comments, put that down below. Thank you for Thank watching. Thank you for joining.
1: Let's see here.